Coming up on today's show, Canada is getting a mental health and addictions ministry. Sounds really good. There are some potential pitfalls, though. How can we make sure that it works? With the work-from-home environment becoming quite common, what if it were against the law for your boss to actually bug you after hours? And what our personality tells us about our music choices and what our music choices tell us about personality. They go hand in hand. We're going to chat with Bernie Pauly. Bernie is a University of Victoria professor and scientist with the Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research. Hang on. Did I? Yeah, okay. Hi, Bernie. How are you? Hi. Um, nice to... Hang on. I, I completely jumped ahead. I, I've, I've confused you and I've confused me. You're here to talk about the new Mental Health and Addictions Ministry. I apologize. I got my pages out of order. <laughs> it's okay. It's like, what are we at? We're like Thursday morning absolutely let's talk we're, about we're, we're all distracted there's a lot going on it's a very busy time but i thank you for joining us we are going to chat about the new mental health and addictions ministry and i'm sorry what i did you there um <laughs> when we take a look at this uh it's the first time that our country has ever had a mental health and addictions ministry and uh, you know i think in many ways obviously that's a positive thing right i mean we know there's some potential pitfalls that we'll talk about in a minute but overall creating this ministry has to be seen as a positive step doesn't it well, I think um, it makes gives a visibility to issues around mental health and substance use broadly. Um, it has that potential to bring kind of these issues into the forefront. It signals that that they're important, mm-hmm. um, and and that's positive. But then we have to look at what's the mandate going to be, um, what resources are going to be provided to this ministry, are they going to take action on the priority issues? That's the thing. And, you know, part of the problem here, and I think there's some positive news here as well, is the new minister, Carolyn Bennett, is also the Associate Minister of Health. So there's still that tie to that ministry because... Correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the concern is, okay, now that you've got this ministry, all the other ministries, and we know that this issue crosses into many different ministries, uh, might be tempted to say, well, it's not our problem anymore. We can just have it kicked over to the Mental Health and Addictions Ministry. It's theirs to deal with, um, when really they still need to be involved. Yeah, that's a very important point, is what's going to be the relationship between the Ministry of Health and a new Ministry of Mental Health and, and Addictions? And that relationship is really important because, you know, Ministry of Health is obviously going to be a much bigger ministry. It's going to hold um, some of the resources, but it can't just go, now I've created yeah. this new ministry, they're responsible, but they don't have any resources um, to actually address um, the issues. So it's going to be really important to see what that relationship looks like. And then the other relationship that's really important is the relationship to the provinces. Um, I'm in British Columbia, and we already have uh, a separate Ministry of Mental Health and Addiction. So what those relationships, how they're going to be laid out, what they're going to look like has the potential to actually, um, it could be a potential to engage more broadly and to better coordinated action, or it could go the other way. We just don't know yet. We'll have to wait and see. And we also have a, a similar uh, ministry in the province of Alberta. And um, and again, we're seeing some positive things there, but there's also, it's also a source of a lot of controversy from some circles. So what do we watch for? What should we be watching for as this ministry gets off the ground and starts working in a federal capacity? What would be a sign of success in your mind? Well, I think the first thing is is we need to watch for what the mandate letter is going to be, um, what actually 
uh, responsibilities and accountabilities are going to be given um, to the new minister and the ministry. And then I think, you know, my work really focuses on um, the overdose crisis. And so I'm going to zone in on on that particular issue and the things I'm going to be looking for. What are they going to take action on decriminalization? Um, something that's been yeah. called for as an action to prevent, you know, devastating loss from overdose. It's something that can't, that the federal uh, level can do. Um, right now, provinces and others have to write exemptions. So, you know, if they take some action around decriminalization, that would be a sign to me um, we're moving in the right direction. A second area would be around scaling up uh, safer supply. Um, Health Canada funds about half a dozen programs across the country. That's pretty small when we know that, you know, there's 20 Canadians a day dying of an overdose. Um, You know, we need safer supply programs all across the country. And we need safer supply programs that are accessible and that and that provide that are very low barrier. So we need new models of safer supply programs. So those are some things I'd be looking for in terms of the overdose crisis. And I think thirdly, I'd be looking for and, and maybe this should really be first. How is this ministry going to engage with people who use drugs? How is it going to engage with families? You know, groups like Mum Stop the Harm, um, yep. our Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs um, as well. So how is this ministry going to engage with people and families with lived and living experience? And are they going to do it in a genuine, authentic way? A lot of the things that you're talking about here, Bernie, whenever we talk about this, I I like to come back to the fact that we're not wandering around in the dark here when it comes to addiction and it comes to overdose and things like that. There is evidence-based science that we can look to. I mean, it's not like this hasn't been figured out, um, but it's a willingness to, to go down that road and do it. I mean, isn't that the biggest step that whoever's in charge of this portfolio can take is let's just follow the science because it's there and we know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the sci- I, your point's very much on the mark is we have a lot of evidence around interventions that can work to reduce harms. Um, we look, we can look across this country, and, and right now Alberta has been, you know, in many ways um, uh, exemplified this in that we don't have good take-up of harm reduction interventions yeah. like supervised consumption. Alberta's been moving in the opposite direction um, of the evidence. And so we have a um, lot, you know, evidence-based interventions, but they're not being taken up across the country. So one of the things that I think about with a new ministry is what kind of expectation will they have on the provinces and what kind of standards might they even um highlight so that we Canadians have equitable access uh, to mental health and substance use services. Um, obviously, we've talked primarily about the opioid epidemic obvi- for obvious reasons. Like you said, uh, you know, many people losing their lives across the country each and every day. It has to be job one. But this portfolio also rolls in mental health and addiction. So um, that should be primary focus, I would think. But um, they can't get completely tunnel focused on that as well. I mean, there's so many things. This is actually a really, really big ministry, if you think about it. Well, it is. There's a number of issues. And I'm just going to mention for a minute is it's kind of unfortunate that it's named the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. It would be better named maybe the Ministry of Mental Health and Substance Use. Mm -hmm. Addiction is just one small part of the whole um, 
continuum of different types of substance use. Um, and I want to just, you know, my area of work is mainly in substance yeah. use, but I think, you know, we're all very familiar, I think, with the way that um, mental health has deteriorated for people during COVID, increased rates of domestic violence. Um, I think we have to, you know, this kind of ministry is going to have a lot of really challenging um, kind of issues to grapple with and issues that are often, um, you know, really often the bigger kind of contributing factors to them aren't always well understood. It's often seen more as, well, this is, you know, an individual who just kind of can't seem to get it together, which is actually not the case. We've got, you know, a wide range of of situations that people live in that make it very difficult um, to have the resources or move forward. So this ministry is going to have to grapple um, with equitable access um, to services. Yeah, it's uh, there's so much. It's uh, it's a big, big job. Uh, Bernie, thank you so much for your time, and apologies again for botching that intro and getting everybody confused and a little panicked, but uh, we recovered <laughs> we and did okay. Totally, <laughs> we totally got it on track. Have a good day. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Bernie. I appreciate it. Speaking of gigs, we were just having the talk about people changing their jobs and speaking with uh, Indeed Canada and saying, you know, when you take a look at the job postings that we're seeing now, we're seeing a lot more mention of hybrid setups or remote work setups where you're doing at least part of your job from home. Still going into the office for some of it, maybe some people not going in at all. Uh, Throughout this entire pandemic, I have, I guess, thinking about it, been doing a hybrid. I've been coming into the building every single day to do my show. A lot of people didn't. A lot of people did their shows from home. Um, I've been coming in every single day, but that's about it. You know, I come in uh, before the show to do some prep work, hit the air. As soon as the show is done, I get out of here. And most of my prep work is done the night before from home. So I am working at home. Um, Now, what about that has been a problem for me? Not much, but I know a lot of people I've talked to. So many people, it's sort of like that line between work and home has been blurred, right? And it's sort of... Now you're always on call. Now, the Ontario government has come up with a proposal for some legislation that would force employers to develop some kind of company policy that makes sure that employees can get away from the office. Hang up the do not disturb sign, if you will. Uh, And it's something that people are saying, yeah, this has to be done. So let's get some insight onto what's going on and why it's important. Uh, We're going to chat with Dr. Linda Duxbury now, who is a management professor at Carleton University. Uh, Doctor, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Not a problem. So, I mean, obviously this is a response to the fact that so many people have seen their work-life balance change, and now they're working from home, and that line's getting blurry, right? I mean, it's just responding to the times. So, to be, to be honest, that line has been blurred for decades, okay? True, true. The minute <laughs> we started, you know, let's not blame everything on COVID. So, the reality is, inter- the email came along, uh, and now we've got it on our phones, too. Yes. So, we are available 24-7, okay? And the push from the part of employers was, you know, because I can reach you 24-7, 
I'm going to, and I'm going <laughs> to expect you to answer me. And I'm going to view and probably likely promote the people who are always responding to me, evenings, weekends, etc., who basically put me first. And I'm going to view those who try to have a life and try to have a balance less favorably. So this has been going on. I mean, I've been doing research on this for way too long. And I've got papers on this that go back a decade ago, you know. So, but COVID has made it worse. And I think, so the Ontario government, kudos for them to recognize that people are struggling right now. Mm -hmm. Like, People are really struggling. Mental health, we've, we haven't had these kind of issues. But to actually what, what uh, those of us who study it and work in the area know that what makes a difference is giving people the perception of some kind of control. So I got my government saying to me, hey, you're not allowed anymore to you know, do your choice when you want to clean up your emails. For a lot of people, they want to have their meals with their kids, watch a TV show, and then they want to do it after hours. And I don't know that putting a law on is going to make life better for them. I mean, because even if the law is there or not, I think you're right. There's this unspoken pressure that we feel, right? I mean, it's whether the law is there or not, you're still going to skirt the law. I mean, I've worked in union shops where the union heads are telling people, you got to stop answering emails. You can't do this anymore. You're not getting Mm -hmm. paid. Stop it. People keep doing it because they feel they have to. You know, my, my dad... You know, he, he, he died at 98, but he was in, he said to me, Linda, people walk all over you. Whose fault is it? Yours for lying there, theirs for walking. You know, do we really need this legislation or can people, you know, actually display a little bit of spine and say, I'm not going to do yeah. it? What we do know is the more you answer, outside of regular office hours, the more people email you outside of office hours. But if they go, oh, Linda, she's not going to, she's not going to answer on the weekend. So I'm not going to try her. I'm going to try Bob, who I know will be back at me in five minutes. So, you know, we have, in some ways, it's uh, our company. and some ways, it's our employer and our manager, but some ways it's us. And so, you know, we need to take a look. We need to say, if you want balance, you've got to start actually managing accordingly. And, you know, I, I like the Globe and Mail said, oh, this, this whole people aren't going to quit in Canada. It's not going to be the same as in the United States. Yeah. Oh, they are so. And, um, you know, what we have to do is start treating people a little bit better and people have to start pushing back. It, it's a combination thing. Um, it is a combination thing. Where does it start? Who needs to go first? I mean, because I think if you're an employee, you feel that's a risk to sit down to your boss and say, hey, you know what? Don't bother me after four o'clock. I'm done for the day. You can't say that to your boss. <laughs> Why can't you? <laughs> because the guy next to you won't, and now he's the favorite. Um, but, uh, you know, the problem also is, as, uh, as I was saying, you know, we have gotten rid of clerical, admin, secretarial support work. Yep. We've dumped all of this communication task onto our people who used to have people to do that. So the reality is workload has gone way up because we actually 
have an additional set of tasks, which is managing our email, on top of all the other stuff that we have to do. And so, you know, a lot of our stuff is focusing on, is it really urgent? And a lot of times we answer things. If we just took a deep breath, ignored it for an hour, it would go away. You know, same with emails from your boss. If you keep supporting that kind of thing, I would have to say that your boss, you know, we're at a pretty critical point. So one of my areas that I study is managing change. We've just gone through COVID. Massive disruption. Disrupted everything, including many of the rules of work. Yeah. All right? And so if you're ever going to push back, now's the time. Great question from one of our listeners. Have you noticed a change in terms of generations? Like, my kid has just started working, and sometimes he'll get a text from the boss saying, hey, come pick up a shift today. And he's like, eh. I don't know if I want to. And for me, that's, that's <laughs> and, and insanity. Then we, 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 we kiss, gay. Okay? We go, what is wrong with them? And uh, I go, yeah, like, are you crazy? They got it right. What's wrong with us? So they're doing a better job of this than we are. To me, that still seems like something you're, you're out of your mind. Somebody asks you to work, you work. You know, but if they ask you, re, in a, a re, if, the, if the demand is reasonable, yes, you should. Okay? But if the demand is not reasonable, you shouldn't. You know, I mean, if if they're expecting you to work on the weekend, because uh, the example you gave me, pick up an extra shift. Yeah. You shouldn't I feel pressure to do it. An extra shift. Are they showing up when they're supposed to show up? Sure. Has their employer got enough people to do the work <laughs> is the question you should be asking. Because if I'm continually having to pick up extra shift, pick up extra shift, come in in the evening, you know, that's part of the issue we've got for nurses right now. You know, it's, it's interesting. Everybody's like, oh, my God, when did this happen with nurses? <laughs> this has been going on for quite a while. And now we're finding that you can only push people so far. When they get exhausted, they don't show up. So all these extra shifts, you know, where is the point of diminishing returns? Interesting, because I told him, you know what, when they call you for the extra shift, that's because you're the one they want there. And if you say no enough times, they're going to move on to somebody else. And then when it's time for a promotion, that's the guy. I mean, basically saying yes or no to that one shift is a big, big deal. You're saying, no, it's not. It's, it's just a shift. As long as you're meeting the job, you're meeting the job. That's what I would say. And I would say if they're constantly calling people to pick up extra shifts, do they have enough trained staff? That's what I would say. Interesting. Okay. So stand up for yourself is the bottom line here. You don't need a government to bring in legislation. Just don't answer your phone, right? Well, no. I, you're, you're also right. Like, you're right and you're not right. You know, it's, <laughs> it's not simple here. No, it's not. But there are a lot of bosses who are quite abusive. There are a lot of companies who, you know, are in fact only delivering because they expect people they're only they're getting their profitability by having an expectation that everybody will deliver 130 yeah. 140%. And that's not reasonable either. But what I would suggest is especially if you're in a position where your skill set is in demand, recognize that now is the time to walk and look. Interesting. You know, have yeah. a discussion first. But if they don't give you what you want, shop around. You know, I, I, you know I, I know this sounds pretty radical, but we're <laughs> at a point where, 
labor markets. I find it very interesting. You know, restaurants, we can't get people. Bus drivers, we can't get bus drivers. You've got to look at working conditions. You've got to look at expectations. You've got to look at how you treat your people. And it's pretty interesting. Most of the research that's coming out here right out right now is saying, you know, you can't buy love. It's not about money. It's about respect. It's about how you treat people. It's whether you listen to people. Money's nice, but you think about it. In a lot of jobs, if money keeps them, you're just renting them and somebody can rent Fair them enough. more. <laughs> Great point. Awesome stuff. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it, Linda. <laughs> okay, thanks. You'll probably get a lot of calls on this. Oh, we will. Thanks. We're getting them already. You bet. <laughs> thanks, Linda. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dr. Linda Duxbury, the management professor at Carleton University. And yeah, I mean, I'm surprised by some of the things that she said, and, and so are you. Uh, This listener says, Shay, I have the same reaction as you. I always tell my kids, they call, you go. My wife is the same. And um, I... That I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it is a generational thing. And thank you to the listener. I don't think we have a name on that one um, who suggested that question because it really is a good question. Um, and I don't know. Growing up, especially getting into, I mean, it, it, when when I started this career, they drilled it into us at school. When you're asked to do something, there's one word you cannot say, and that word is no. Even if you don't know how to do it, you say yes and then figure out how to do it. If you're asked to do this, you do it. Um, and attitude is what will keep you employed and help you to advance in the career. And I think that has changed somewhat in different generations. They're a little more selective about where they're going to work and when they're going to work, and they have different priorities and things like that. And obviously that's healthy in some ways. But long term for me, it's just it's absolutely the opposite of the way that I was when I was that age. It was, that's what you do. You want to be the guy that they call. When they call and say, hey, we got a shift or we need help, that you want them calling you and then you want to make them look good for calling you. You want to be the reliable one. You want to be the one they turn to. Kids these days, at least my kids, not necessarily carrying over that attitude. It's sort of like, yeah, if, if I've got nothing else to do, and sometimes even when I do have nothing else to do, I don't feel like working. I worked yesterday. Royal Blood. Love this song. Let it play, Sarah. Let it play. Because we're talking about music here. And this is loud, and it's noisy, and it's aggressive. It's fantastic. Now, what does that say about my personality? Apparently, a whole hell of a lot. Uh, You can tell a lot about... And I think most of us are aware of this, right? I mean, if you think about it, we can sort of... We form social groups based around music. It sort of becomes identity in a lot of cases, but it goes deeper than that. And it changes and it evolves. We're going to have a really interesting discussion here. I think this is going to be fun. We're going to talk about music and personality on a couple of different levels. First, we're going to talk about how you can 
be drawn to certain kinds of music and more than just the music itself, how you explore music and how you experience music based on your personality. So let's get into it. We're going to chat now with Ravan Alai, who is co-author of a recent research paper, Appearance Reveals Music Preferences. Um, Ravan, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Oh, great. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, so let's start. This I'm going to start with the most baffling aspect of your study here to me. You can, your, your premise and what your study found is you can tell what kind of a person, what kind of music a person prefers by looking at a, at a picture of them. Is, is that, is that true? I mean, is that oversimplifying things? Tell us about the study. Um, no, that, that is uh, essentially true. So what we did was uh, at the University of Toronto, we recruited just shy of 300 undergraduate students. We didn't tell them that the study was about music, so they just came in wearing what they typically wear on a yeah. regular day. We took a picture of their full body, so from head to toe, and then after that, we just asked them to do a quick scale on what kind of genres they like. And then we showed those photographs, that so we took the head to toe photographs, to a bunch of other people who didn't know these uh, undergraduate students, and they just had to guess what kind of music does this person like. And what we found was that they could tell to, with a certain degree of accuracy uh, what kind of genres people like just based off their appearance. And then just the final thing I'll say is because we were kind of startled by this finding too, we thought, okay, how much can we take away and still have this accuracy? So we started cropping the photos. We showed just the bodies with no heads or we showed just the heads or just the hair or just the eyes. Because that's, then, cause I'm lot, sure there's a lot of yeah. people saying, well, sure, if you got somebody dressed a certain way or their hair is done a certain yeah. way, that might give you a signal. But you're saying, no, you eliminated all those obvious cues. Exactly. And if people were wearing a band T-shirt or like a, whatever it might have said on their T-shirt, we just blurred that out. So we don't think it was just that. So what does that tell us? I mean... Is that a genetic? I mean, help me make sense of this by looking at just somebody's eyes or just their face without any hair or anything. like. How can that determine what kind of music we like? What, what, what did you learn from this? For sure. So we haven't gone uh, deep into that specific question, but there's a lot of research we can uh, think about to kind of try to help us think about this. There's a lot of research on how people's faces can tell at least a little bit about their personalities, about their values, about the groups they belong to. So we think that uh, people are picking up on those cues just from the eyes, just from the hair, just from the, the mouth, and they're, they're identifying what kind of person is this, and then they can make the link of, well, they're this kind of person with this kind of personality values, so they might like this kind of music. Um, now, it's not a chicken or an egg thing, right? It's not like, okay, if you look a certain way, you're going to like a certain kind of music, right? I mean, it, it, it goes the opposite. The music we listen to reflects our personality more so, Right. I would think so. Again, I can only speculate yeah. on that. You could you could think about situations in which you start to identify with people who look like you, right. for instance, and then they like a certain kind of music, and you kind of build that social bond. And I think when you talk about that, music and those social bonds have been around for as long as music has been around. And we already got a text from a listener saying one of the first questions I ask when I meet new people is, what kind of music do you listen to? Because that can be a common ground area. So that social bond around music, that's key, right? For sure. Um, we actually did a, a final study uh, in, the, in this project, and what we found was that based off what kind of music you think someone likes, based off their appearance, you're going to be more, um, more uh, likely to want to meet them or want to get to know them. So for sure, social bonding, and this goes back thousands of years, like you said, we, uh, scientists think that music is a, is a huge force in, in bringing people together. Interesting. Um, the, the other study, uh, personality types. 
and and how they relate to music. That one seems to make sense to me, right? And mm-hmm. d- depending on the way that, you know, if you're extroverted or if you're adventurous or you're a risk taker, that you're going to reflect that in the music that you listen to. Yeah, so that was just building off previous research. Maybe in the t- past 10, 15 years, there's yep. been a lot of work showing that people's personality relates to the kind of music they like. Just like you said, like if you're extroverted, you might like electronic, pop, or rap, like more upbeat, yep. kind of loud music, right? And so we just picked up off that, and we thought, well, if you can tell someone's personality from their appearance, which we already know, yeah. and maybe that's what people are using to figure out what kind of music someone likes. Now, the interesting thing here is this one, does it is does it evolve more in terms of the way, because, I mean, my musical tastes have changed dramatically over the years. Um, yeah. Does it, does it evolve, obviously, depending on where you are in life kind of a thing? Yeah, so do you mean in terms of appearance or in terms of what kind of music you like? Both, both. Okay, yeah, so the appearance question uh, I can't answer because we didn't didn't recruit people over time. Okay. Um, But that would be very interesting to look at. In terms of personality, for sure. I mean, people, as they get older, uh, we know that they get more extroverted, they get more emotionally stable, uh, they become more polite and kinder to the people around them and more reliable and organized. Yeah. And, yeah, your music preferences track along that, too. Interesting research. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Robin. I appreciate it. For sure. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Um, Robin Alai, who was one of the group of researchers who took a look at this, and I think some of it makes sense, right? And a lot of you are saying, well, come on, it's not that simple. No, it's not that simple. There's a lot of complexities, but I think we underestimate, some people do anyway, how important music is to society and to you know, the way that we see each other and the way that we act. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.